Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes therapist and author Dr. Alexander Solomon to the show for part one of their conversation on relationships, self-discovery, and loving bravely. Part two will be released on December 21st. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock for another episode. I'm really looking forward to telling you about our guest today and all the wonderful work that she has done that we're going to be sharing with you about. My guest today is Dr. Alexandra Solomon. And over the last two decades, she has become one of today's most trusted voices in the world of relationships. And her work on relational self-awareness has reached millions of people around the world. She's a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University, where she is on the faculty in the School of Education and Social Policy. She teaches an internationally renowned course called Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. Doesn't that sound like a course that many of us may have benefited from? In addition to writing articles and chapters for leading academic journals and books in the field of marriage and therapy, she's the author of two best-selling books, Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. Dr. Solomon regularly presents to groups ranging from the United States Military Academy at West Point to Microsoft and many others where she talks about relationships. She's also been featured on media outlets such as the Today Show, O Magazine, The Atlantic, Vogue, and Scientific American. She's also, I want to mention before she joins us, starting a new podcast called Reimagining Love. So stay tuned, and Dr. Solomon will be coming right up. Well, Dr. Solomon, thank you so much for joining us here on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast today. Thank you so much for having me on, Karen. Yeah, so you have, I let listeners know before you got on several, you have two books, you have a a new podcast that has um, started a lot going on. I gave them your formal background before you hopped on, but I always like to ask folks their informal background, like what, what drew you to this work? How did you end up doing, doing what you're doing? Right. I, um, you know, I went to college at University of Michigan, laser focused on becoming a doctor. It was what I wanted to be since I was a little girl. I wanted to be a pediatrician. And so I started my pre-med curriculum and I was kind of just clipping along until fall of sophomore year of college. I took a women's studies class and it was like my consciousness just like expanded so profoundly. And I loved 
looking at relationships and gender and culture and how all these messages, you know, get internalized without us even consciously being aware and deciding. And at that point, I was falling pretty in, pretty deeply in love with uh, my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband of 23 plus years. And so I pivoted, um, you know, pretty quickly. Like, I think that by spring of my sophomore year, I was immersed in a psychology curriculum and starting to look into clinical psychology, graduate work and becoming a therapist. And I'm so glad that I did. I mean, I, I'm sure I would have had a lovely life in medicine, but this work, as you know very well, I'm never bored. I'm always learning. And there's, I think for me, this added piece as a little girl who grew up watching the big people who were in charge of raising me, my mom and stepdad and my dad and stepmom, you know, I watched them um, sort of struggling in their relationships in, in different ways and um, feeling helpless, right? I mean, I think, you know, lots of grownups struggle, but I think for me, it was, it, my pain point was around feeling helpless, feeling like I could see and feel suffering and not do anything about it. So I think there's a way that like that little girl part of me, you know, feels so um, soothed now, you know, with the work that I am so grateful to be able to do with couples and teaching and writing and all of that. So I'm as, as many of us therapists and teachers, we move, we go into this work in part, I think, to offer some healing to ourselves. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Well, you mentioned, um, you know, talking about your experiences growing up and in your book, one of the things that, well, of course there were bells going off in my mind all through the book about how the book specifically relates to attachment theory, lots of other ideas too. But for the purpose of our discussion, one of the things that you said was your love classroom, your family home was your first love classroom. And before the age of two, your a style was determined that stays with you today, you know, meaning and an attachment style. So that idea that your family is your love classroom I, I I really I really liked that tell me tell me more about how you came up with framing it that way mm, well I mean I think it just sort of I think a lot of my language reflects my nerdiness like I just <laughs> I'm so happy in school right I am never really sort of not in school so I think that all of those like images and metaphors just work really well for me I, I've been teaching at Northwestern now for over over 20 years. And one of my main, one of the, the main sort of aspects of my teaching is I teach this um, unique undergraduate course called Building Loving and Lasting Relationships Marriage 101. And so I stand every year. This when we teach the class this spring, it'll be our 21st year teaching it. So I was teaching this class like long before I was even a parent. You know, I was a newlywed, why, you know, um, new in my marriage and still a graduate student when this course began. Um, and so every year, you know, I stand in front of this room full of college students, and my job is to help them develop relationships relational self-awareness, right? Which is the term that I've created to kind of capture that's this your, idea. That's your, one of your foundational concepts. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. That's right. So this idea that, right, like just as you said, that our, so, so, you know, to teach a hundred students about, you know, the class is called Marriage 101, but really it's about helping them figure out what they bring to the table, like what they're bringing into an intimate partnership dynamic, because I don't, it's not, it's not a top-down approach, right? I don't care whether any of them get married. I don't care the kinds of relationships they create, the kinds 
of sexual bound. I mean, I want them to create sexual boundaries that are full of integrity, but integrity for them, right? So I've, I've got students in the classroom who are, um, you know, have never held hands with somebody and students who are deep in exploration of kink and polyamory and open relationships. And so I need to find, I've needed to find a way to teach that honors all of the different ways that they are showing up, they are showing up for their relationships. So this idea of just helping them understand themselves kind of keeps me anchored in what matters most. And it is true. I mean, you know, more than just about anybody that the attachment research shows us that when we're little, we are just absorbing all of these messages, um, sometimes explicitly, but mostly implicitly. And it's in what we observe the big people. We watch the big people and how they relate to each other, how they handle difference and emotion. And then we also just feel how they relate to us. And, um, mm-hmm. and we take on all those messages and about who we are, because we are, you know, the self, I believe, and I'm sure you believe as well, the self is so inherently relational, right? I don't really, I would never go on a quest for my true self. Myself is always being made and remade in the context of the relationships that matter to me. Yes, yes. Well, I think many listeners would be thinking, I would like to have taken that course in college, you know, and I'm sure it's very popular. And it actually brings me to another thing that you talk about at the beginning of Loving Bravely about we don't really get education about relationships. Like you give some examples, you get more education about, you know, <laughs> lots of other things, you know, where to buy tires or something, whatever. Um, and so little about relationships. And that, and that was part of the impetus for this course, right? That's absolutely. Yeah. So the course was created by um, two of my, uh, you know, mentors, um, who uh, Art Nielsen and Bill Pinsoff, who Bill Pinsoff is one of the really the founding fathers of the field of couples therapy. And, um, you know, the two of them had been working by that point, they'd been working for decades as couples therapists. And so they were just sitting in their offices day after day, you know, kind of overwhelmed by by the depth and complexity of problems that couples would bring in, right? Fights they've been having yes. for years and years and years without any of that ability to kind of turn and look inward and take responsibility for self. And so the two of them wondered, like, what if, you know, what if we could connect with young people before they have um, kind of experienced, you know, a lot of pain and frustration and heartache and heartbreak and help them learn some things? Because I, by that point, so this was like the late 90s, the field of, of relationship science was, you know, pretty robust even by then, right? Even by the late 90s, we were, um, you know, Sue Johnson and emotion-focused therapy was well on its way. And we had lots of data about, about couples therapy as um, effective and that we could change patterns and we could change not just how people talk to each other, but how people really feel, you know, in the space with each other. And so it was fun. I was, a grad, as I mentioned before, I was a grad student at the time. So we got to kind of start with this blank slate and figure out, okay, so if you had a room full of college students, like what would you want them to know? And so we built the course from the ground up. Um, We talked to a bunch of couples therapists. We were like, okay, so if you had, you know, some 19 and 20 year olds, like what would you be saying to them? So we, you know, gathered data and kind of built this curriculum. And I, of course, 
over these decades have modified it as the field has grown, as young people's expectations about relationships have changed. You know, back in 2000, it was not unusual to have a few engaged students, you know, not never, it was never a lot, but marriage was certainly closer on the horizon than, than, than it is now for most um, young people. And the, you know, the rate of marriage is lower than it ever has been. The age of entry into marriage is older than it has been. So I talk a lot more now about um, sex and dating and breakups and healing and integration, all of that. Um, so it's much less about marriage per se and much more about navigating um, you know, those early experiences so that they become the foundation rather than things you have to get over. Right, right. Well, I think you bringing up that context and how the course has changed over the years is such a good lead in for something else that you write about in Loving Bravely, and that is how expectations for intimate relationships have changed a great deal. And I I think that's something listeners would benefit from hearing you talk about a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, in the big picture, sort of the way that I tend to frame this is we've made a shift and it's not a new shift, it's probably, you know, at least 50 years old at this point from, you know, kind of role to role relationships to soul to soul relationships, right? Where, you know, our, certainly my grandparents didn't really, don't, well, maybe they did it. They're not here for me to ask, but I don't know that they really wondered, you know, like, does, does grandpa get me, right? Like, does he, you know, like how seen do I feel in this marriage? I think, you know, the expectations are sort of, and they were highly gendered. So I say this in a highly gendered way, right? Like a good wife was somebody who made a home and, you know, cared for children. And a good husband was somebody who brought home money, who went to work and brought home money, right? That provider caregiver model, like that was the ceiling. Like that was what you would hope for, Um in a, in a marriage. And, um, and so it's highly, highly role bound. And, um, and what we want now is, you know, far more ephemeral, a little bit harder to nail down. We want intimacy, right? We want to feel seen. We want our relationships to be spaces where we can grow and change and evolve. And I am all for those kinds of expectations is what I want in my own marriage, but it means that we have to bring a different set of skills and a different kind of willingness to really, really look at our history, our original love classroom, be committed to um, healing as an ongoing journey, not just like listen to three podcasts and read a book and call it a day, right? But just is an ongoing practice of looking at my reactivity to my husband as holding some really important clues about my own relationship with myself, about my, you know, about my expectations, taking more responsibility for how I make sense of him and how I make sense of myself. So that all of that, those relationship skills are just essential. Yes, yes. Well, and the whole first section of your book is about self-reflection. I want to reiterate the subtitle of the book, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want. Just really want to be emphasizing that how your, your hallmark of, of self-awareness. But one of the things that struck me that you wrote about in the first part related to this is kind of what some of the relationship or marriage literature gets wrong. And you talked about 
as you were reviewing some of it, this idea that if you listen to your intuition, you'll screw up. Like, like there, that there's these prescribed ways to be, you know, and, and I don't know that you mentioned this exactly, but, you know, these, these old adages, like play hard to get or, you know, all of these, you know, that there's certain ways that, that we're going to do things and don't pay attention to your gut. You know, you have to do these things. And you're saying you're turning that upside down and saying, no, 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 that that is not, you know, and, and talk about your discouragement with that message that if you follow your intuition, you'll screw up. Talk to us about that and and why you think that's I mean, parts of it are obvious why that's a bad path, but specific to, to your work and your thinking mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, I, I was really inspired to to write Loving Bravely in part in response to what I was a lot of what's out there in terms of like mainstream sort of popular psychology books that especially, you know, especially I think um, do a disservice to those who are looking for love by presenting mm-hmm. love and dating in these ways that are highly strategic, um, you know, rule-based kind of like follow this set of external rules. Like don't, you know, whatever, wait 24 hours until you text them. And, and as you mm-hmm. said, play hard to get. And, um, you know, if it's not fireworks on the first date, you better, you know, try the next person and make sure this person checks all your boxes. Like it just, it, there's a, a lot of um, what Bill Doherty calls a consumer mindset, you know, like where we, yes. people approach dating, like it's like searching for a, a product, right? And there's a way, you know, I don't I don't need to throw dating apps under the bus because they are, I, I think, you know, as far as dating apps go, they're a wildly helpful way to find um, potential partners. But there's a, a way, you know, I, I think we've, we've become in the last couple of years, much more critical of social media in general and technology in general, right? technology going from sort of being a tool that we use to being like, you know, tools that use us, right? That like sort of mm-hmm. hook our attention Attention. And I think that probably a lot of the dating apps are using some of those strategies to kind of keep users hooked in and, and treating this like a game. And if I just, I've had so many young people in my life say, and not young people, I think people who are sort of dating again after divorce experience this too, this like almost compulsivity. Like I just have to keep swiping because what if I stop mm-hmm. swiping and my soulmate was like one more swipe away. Right? Mm-hmm. So this idea, it kind of feels frantic. It feels um, much more of like a scarcity mindset. And I think it creates, I think a lot of the sort of like trappings of modern dating play into this idea that if I just get the rules right, I'm going to find quote unquote, the one. And so I really wanted to write Loving Bravely from a space of inviting people to do the harder thing, which is working on ourselves so that then the choices that we make are guided by our own felt sense of enoughness, of calm, of sort of an internal sense of like groundedness and security rather than kind of a frantic, ungrounded, like, wait, what should I be doing? And am I getting this right? Kind of a sense. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, that, so that was, so yeah, that was where that piece comes from. And, um, and part of that is right. Like intuition, like I really want, one of the things I've been talking about lately is like, I really want someone to come home 
from a first date. And well, I want people, you know, to have rituals like before, during and after a first date. So that before a first date, they really are using all of that really good somatic stuff that we've been getting into as a field lately, right? Around something yes. just moving the body, grounding the body, like really intentionally, like getting calm before a first date, because the only goal of a first date is to just discern do I want a second date, right? That's all you have to do. And then during a date, sort of practicing that mindfulness rather than what it's so easy to do, which is get hyper-focused on like, what are you thinking of me? Do you think I'm funny enough? Are you judging me? Or what people do, which is get hyper-focused on like, you know, well, I don't, they've got that front tooth kind of sticks out in a funny way. And I don't know what, what is their hair doing and why they just say that. So we can get kind of focused, like hyper-focused on, self-criticism or judgment of the other rather than just like that mindful presence. Mm-hmm. And then after a first date, I really want people to come home and just savor it. Like let the experience settle a bit mm-hmm. before, like, so that our, so that the body can kind of feel into what that experience was rather than perhaps picking up the phone and calling a friend and like, you know, talking it all through because it's the moment we do that we're getting a ton of feedback from the friend about, wait, what they said, what? And I can't believe that. Oh, and they shouldn't have done that. And they should, you know, like we're sort of then having to integrate our own sense of the date with our friends, thoughts and opinions, which are shaped of course, by their beliefs and expectations and experience and cultural locations. So um, I think dating, you know, the whole experience of dating gives a chance, gives folks a chance to, again, kind of come into themselves and trust a bit more their inner, you know, inner world. Yeah, that last part of what you said was another thing that I keep saying this, listeners, but this book is chocked full of so many different things. And it was really, uh, I highly recommend you get it. It's it's, it's hard to to stop bringing up these different awarenesses I gained from the book. But with what you were saying right there about um, culture and the influence Mm -hmm. of other people's ideas and opinions, you talk about this in the book and you even, um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, talk about it even from a personal perspective of uh, talking about a date with a parent and, you know, hearing their thoughts or comments, or, I I mean, these are, I guess I previously thought, well, you're just like kind of processing what happened. And I was not until I read what you were writing, paying close enough, enough attention to, well, you are processing it, but it's not just your process. Like they can be very strongly influencing you. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was really intriguing because like you said, there is this, you know, we're going to run off and call someone or start texting someone about it. And mm-hmm. you're saying, no, let it settle in. Those things can really influence, I guess I, we could say finding your own North star, so to speak. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Um, yeah, you're bringing, uh, well, I think you're, I think that you're starting to bring us towards talking about the love template interview or the conversation with parents. So I want like, yes. And I, for sure, I would love to spend some time talking about that. And I'd be interested in your, you know, as somebody who has, who is an attachment researcher, I would love to hear kind of how that landed with, with some of the attachment work that you're doing. But yes, I think to kind of just like close up that part, you know, and I think the, the, the challenge, so loving bravely is meant to be read by somebody at any stage of development, right? So we're focusing a bit here on folks who are dating, but 
I've had tons yes. of married couples who've read it or people who are in relationships who've read it. So it really, because it is, it's a journey into self. But the part, Karen, that you are highlighting is that we, um, we turn to people we love and trust to talk through our relationship problems, right? Whether it's like, a you know, making some sense of a first date or it's a frustration with our partner of many, many years, you know, we turn towards people, I think, to sort of like level set or to vent or to download. And I just think it's an important thing for people to keep in mind that there is a difference between, you know, what the Buddhists would call like idiot compassion and wise compassion. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the idiot compassion is easy. Like, I cannot believe they said that to you and you deserve better. Like that's sort of the easy thing to do. And the wise compassion is to just kind when 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 um, you know when somebody's coming to us and they are venting to us, rather than letting ourselves kind of like indulge in the oh my gosh I can't believe that and how could they ever say that to you to really challenge ourselves to offer wise compassion to say and how did that make you feel and tell me more about that. Right. Just to like reflect back to, you know, if we want to be really brave, like my, my best friend, if I ever try to like vent to her about my husband, like she'll give me a little bit of like, Oh my God, I can't believe that. But then she'll be like, okay. So then like, what was your part of it? Right. Like she'll like hold my feet to the fire, but like, what yeah. did you do and what was going on for you and what could you do differently? Because that, you know, so I think there's, that's the wise compassion piece is like helping the people we love, move into at least responsibility for their part of the dance because everything that happens in a relationship is a dance right it's a choreography it's a pattern and so we are most empowered when we are either invited into that kind of like self-reflection or we take it upon ourselves to self-reflect and to kind of wonder about okay so what is the story i'm telling myself about this what are the ways in which i play into this um so I think that's um, that. I think is the that's the way that I would like all of us to be engaging with the people in our lives is to be asking them to 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 be reflecting, do, doing more reflecting than advising, right? Mm-hmm. More questions than you know reactions. We yeah. Yes, yes. Well, Dr. Solomon, this has been so fascinating so far. Listeners, I hope you will join us as we continue our discussion next week with Dr. Alexandra Solomon, author of Loving Bravely and several other books that will, several other things that we'll remind you of at the end of um, our interview. So um, thank you for joining us for part one. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.